Today's reading comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you a story about a man named Martin. Martin was uh, 21 years old, and he was on track uh, to finish his law degree. When on a walk home, he found himself caught in the middle of an open field as a thunderstorm suddenly rolled in. And this was such a severe thunderstorm that a bolt of lightning hit the ground near him and struck him to the ground. Terrified, he cried out, To the patron saint of his father, he said, Saint Anne, help me. I will become a monk. Now, that might sound like an absurd prayer to pray, but I think uh, those of you who have found yourselves in desperate situations before, um, you know that sometimes we can try and bargain with God. You know how this works. God, help me, and I'll, you know, you fill in the blank. I'll I'll stop cussing. I'll, I'll start tithing. I'll go to church. I'll become a missionary. But the only difference between Martin and uh, some of us is that Martin actually followed through on his promise. Uh, Having been delivered from the thunderstorm and uh, really against his own inclination and certainly against the wishes of his parents, but feeling under divine constraint, he arranged his affairs and he presented himself to the monastery. And maybe by now you've figured out that this is Martin Luther Uh, the monk who would reintroduce the world to the teachings of St. Paul. Well, once inside the cloister, Martin gave himself over to his new life, spending his days in prayer and song and meditation. And yet the more Martin fulfilled his duties, the more troubled his mind and his heart became. He realized that he was not meeting the demands of a righteous God. And so you know what he did? He doubled down on his efforts so that he might be worthy of God's grace. He fasted so often that his friends feared for his life. He practiced vigils and prayers in excess of those that were stipulated by the monastery. Yet despite all of his efforts, his conscience reminded him constantly that he was failing to attain the perfection he knew that God demanded. Luther confessed his sins frequently. In in fact, uh, so often... That one time, it was six hours he spent in the confession booth. He knew that God was holy and that even the smallest sin would be more than enough to banish him from God forever. His mentor, who would receive these lengthy confessions, one day looked at Martin 
and told him to simply love God. But here was the problem. How could anyone love a God he feared? How could anyone love a God who is described as a consuming fire? How could anyone love a God who judges sinners? Love God? Martin asked. And then he said to himself, I hate him. And at this point, Martin's advisor took a big gamble, believing it would help Martin in his struggle toward salvation if he were to teach the Bible. His mentor arranged for him to become a professor at a local university. And one of the first courses that Martin taught was on the book of Romans. And it was in this book that he came across the phrase, the righteousness of God. It's a phrase that occurs eight times in the letter and four times in our passage today. He trembled at this phrase. He would write this, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. And it's my hope that all of us have that same yearning. About this passage we'll look at, uh, the great commentator James Boyce said, we're dealing with themes that are the very heart, not only of Paul's letter, but of the entire Bible and therefore of reality himself. Uh, The great preacher Donald Barnhouse from Philadelphia, he drew a heart around this paragraph in his Bible and said, these verses are the most important verses in all of Scripture. Another commentator called this the greatest paragraph ever written. Uh, Another very gifted Bible teacher who uh, had spent many years studying the Bible said, I don't know of another passage that says so much about the gospel. By the way, that was Pastor David Beatty. Uh, Now, uh, before we look at this paragraph, uh, we need to orient ourselves. If you've ever watched a TV show like 24 or NCIS, you know how these shows often begin, right? Previously, on 24, and then what happens? You, You get a couple snippets from previous episodes so that you have a little context. And in the same way, we're hopping in midstream right here in the middle of an argument, so we need to situate ourselves with a little context. And it might help to think of the beginning of this letter as a, as a courtroom trial. And beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, the prosecuting attorney begins laying out the case. And every single one of us, all mankind, is seated in the defendant's chair. And as the trial begins, a very serious charge is leveled against us. We see it in Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then the prosecutor moves on to marshal evidence and show why everyone is guilty of suppressing God's truth and is therefore subject to God's judgment. The prosecution then brings the case to a close in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, with the concluding statement, Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, 
so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. See, at the start of chapter 3, Paul is anticipating the objection that some of his Jewish friends might make. They might say, sure, I mean, God's wrath is going to be poured out, but uh, just on the Gentiles, not on us, because we're God's special people. We're privileged. God entrusted us with his special revelation, the law. And Paul says, no, no, no. Uh, don't you understand that the whole, the whole purpose of the law, one of the main purposes, is to reveal that we don't measure up. And so every single mouth is going to be silenced. In his paraphrase of the scriptures, Eugene Peterson, in the message, he puts it like this. We're sinners, every one of us, in the same sinking boat with everyone else. Now you might say, I don't know, I don't, I don't believe in sin. That's just a social construct. Re religion, that's something that's invented by man. And, and this concept of sin, it's introduced as a, as a tool to try and control people through guilt and through shame. And the only reason Martin Luther struggled with all that stuff was because he grew up in an oppressive religious environment. And I, I just think, I think that people should live the way they're going to live. They, they, they should just, just do what seems right to them. And who cares what anyone else thinks? But you know what? Pe people who, who, who say that, they're still making moral judgments. They're still saying things like, you know, I'm, I'm living the kind of life that I think others should live. Or they'll say things like, well, I'd never do that. Or I always try and do right by other people. And Romans 2 makes it clear. That's because we all have a conscience. And we know that we should be living in a certain way. And deep down, I think all of us realize that we should be far better than we really are. And even if we're simply judged by God on, on the basis of uh, the same standards that we would expect of others, we won't measure up. And I, I realize this isn't a really popular teaching. It, it isn't exactly in vogue to talk about sin, a, a word that means to miss the mark. I mean, we want to sidestep this because, I, I mean, who... who this isn't good for our self-esteem. I mean, who wants to be told that they're, they're not measuring up? Or worse yet, who, who wants to be told that they're actually accountable to someone? Who, who wants to have their autonomy infringed upon? Anybody? No, this isn't popular. But, but, but we need to mention it because this is what the first two chapters of Romans are devoted to. And this is why the, the, the Romans' road to salvation, the one we're working on memorizing, right, these bookmarks we got from uh, David Holcomb and Emily Rubel, this is why they begin the way that they do. No one is righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10, and then Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But you might say, well, what, wait, wait, what about people who are really good? And I mean, they're just leading upstanding moral lives. Well, the prosecution brings the case to a close by addressing that in Romans 3.20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, there's no good deeds, there's no performance plan, there's no moral resume that anyone can compile that will allow us to be justified in God's sight. 
If there are any words that are to be spoken before the bar of God, it's not going to be an excuses, uh, but it's going to be an acknowledgement that, yes, we have suppressed the truth. And after hearing all these facts and reviewing the evidence on such an airtight case, this is where we might expect the trial to proceed immediately to sentencing. So let's continue reading, beginning in verse 21. I've got it here. But now, I'm just, I'm just going to stop right there. If you've comprehended anything of what we've just read, you know how tremendous these words are. But is a word that reverses the statement that's gone before it. And now is a word that we use to delineate time. So this verse is letting us know that, that there has been a great shift in history. There's been a great turning point in God's dealing with the human race. What was true then is no longer true now. And what was true then? Well, we remember Romans 1.18, right? The wrath of God is being revealed. But what's true now? But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, or we could say, that's not a word we use very often, is it manifested? But it, it means revealed, or made known, or disclosed. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here the Bible lays out so clearly the truth that led to Martin Luther's breakthrough. The righteousness of God is something to be celebrated, not feared. You see, this phrase, the righteousness of God, it can be interpreted in two ways. It can refer to a quality or an attribute of God. And, and taken this way, the righteousness of God would emphasize God's morally correct behavior. His justice, the fact that he always does what's right as he rules and, and governs the world. It's a righteousness that's displayed. And, and without a really clear understanding of the gospel, one can see how the revelation, the making known of this righteousness, would incite fear in the heart of sinners like Luther. But the righteousness of God can also be interpreted to mean a righteousness from God. And in this way, it isn't a, uh, just a righteousness that's uh, displayed by God, but a righteousness that's granted by God. And, and looking at the context, it's this second meaning that makes the most sense in verses 21 and 22. Another usage of this phrase that clearly has this meaning is found in Philippians 3, 9, where Paul says this. He says that he wants to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So this is a righteousness that's not one's own, but one that's gifted or given by God. And this is ultimately what led the way 
for Luther to find peace with God and, and to have assurance of salvation. And not just him, but so many others. Now, I want to mention that these, these two meanings of righteousness of God, they're not contradictory. They're not mutually exclusive. And in ancient times, it, it was common to use wording that had a double sense in order to add weight and enrichment, similar to how Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be lifted up. Because as we read this passage, what we're going to see is that God actually grants righteousness to sinners in a way that allows him to display his just and holy nature. And it's God's righteousness as an attribute that's actually in view when we get to verses 25 and 26. Our outline of that paragraph that we just saw, it's going to have four points. If you're following along, if you're taking notes on the back of the bulletin, you'll see we're just kind of going to fill in the blanks for one sentence that's going to help us understand why the manifestation of the righteousness of God is such good news First, we'll see the result of this manifestation. Second, the source of it. Third, the grounds for it. And finally, the means uh, by which one acquires it. So here we go. Just remember, here's, here's, here's how it starts off. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So first... What's the result of this righteousness being made known? Well, from a human standpoint, we can say this. Sinners can experience justification. Sinners can be justified. And this is really great news because we remember from verse 20, the one that just came right before it, it said, by the works of the law, no human being will be what? Help me out here. Justified. No one's getting justified. But now, all of a sudden, one verse later, there is this justification that's made possible. Even though we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we can still be justified apart from the law. But what does it mean to be justified? Well, you might be interested to know that the word righteousness and justify share the same root in the Greek. That They are such closely connected terms that justify simply means to declare righteous. In fact, in verse 20, where that ESV, the translation we were looking at, where it uses the word justified, the translators of the NIV just use the expression declare righteous. It's a word that has a judicial or a forensic flavor. It's the opposite, we could say, of being condemned. You can think of it that way. And in Luther's day, the Roman Catholic Church taught that justification was a process whereby God actually made you righteous. He infused you with righteousness as you pursued these means of grace that he had made available through the church. So baptism, communion, prayers, confession. And by availing yourself to these means of grace, you could become righteous enough whereby God just might declare you justified. And Luther studied this word. He, he looked, he saw how it was used elsewhere, and he realized that justification is actually a legal declaration that happens all at once. Justification is not a process by where we are made righteous. It's a pronouncement where we're declared righteous all at once. In spite of our sins, past, present, future, they're no longer counted against us. So righteousness is not something that's infused to us. It's something that's imputed to us or it's accredited to us. 
It would be like this. If I were to go to court and to stand trial and the judge were to declare me not guilty, I would be cleared from the charges all at once. He wouldn't put me on some seven-step rehabilitation program. I'd be cleared. And in order to stand before a holy God, we need to be justified. We need to be declared righteous. And the manifestation of the righteousness of God, this being disclosed, means that justification is now available. But what's, what's the source here? What's, what's the motivation behind this? Well, our passage helps us out. We look again at verses 23 and 24. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His what? Grace. So, our justification is by grace. And, and just so we don't miss that, do you remember what came next? It says that it's a gift. I mean, this is, this is redundant writing, of course. Your like, English teacher might mark you off for it. But it's added here for emphasis. There's nothing we can do to deserve this. I, I had a friend in high school. He was uh, hopeful to win a soccer scholarship. So he took some of like, the game tape, some of the film, and he, he edited it. He spliced together these snippets of him uh, juking the defenders and scoring on the goalies, and he sent it off, and guess what? He got a scholarship to a university. I said, yeah, come on for free. Is that grace? What do you think? No, it's not grace. But what, what? a free ride? It's not Grace? Grace is unearned favor. And that was earned, wasn't it? He did something to make himself attractive. And our scripture is clear that the justification happens apart from any human merit. It's kindness shown to us when we are completely undeserving. And I fear this is lost on many of us today because our tendency is to take a rather high opinion of ourselves. Maybe some of you who are older who never received a participation medal growing up. Maybe you don't have these issues. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I'm inclined to think that it's, uh, it's nature and not nurture, that just our tendency as, as human beings is to uh, think of ourselves as pretty decent people. But here's the thing. If you truly understand what this passage is teaching and you believe that you can only be saved by grace, you'll know it, and here's why. Because you'll have no issue singing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. See, grace is going to be amazing to you, and you're going to realize your, your helpless, your wretched state apart from it. Let's continue in our passage. If the manifestation of the righteousness of God means that sinners can experience justification by grace on what grounds is this justification offered? Well, it's offered on account of Christ's work. Let's go back to our college example for a minute. I'm going to change things slightly. Let's say, let's say you're a mediocre student in high school. Let's say like 2.0 GPA, bottom 10th of your class, zero athletic talent, no extracurricular activities, and the director of admissions from Wake Forest calls you up and says, we want to offer you a free ride, everything, room, board, tuition, it's all covered, come on. That's more like grace right there, right? 
But somebody's still got to fund that. There's still a cost associated with that. Because someone's going to have to pay for your food. Someone's going to have to foot the bill for the upkeep of the facilities and to pay the teachers. Now, in the same way, verses 24 and 25 illuminate the cost of God's grace. These verses make clear that we are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. There are two words there that help us understand how the work of Christ makes it possible for us to be justified. And the first is redemption. Now, if uh, you came of age in the 90s, when you hear the word redeem, I know what you're thinking of. The movie Dumb and Dumber. Am I right? Yes. And uh, you're you're, you're thinking of that scene where Lloyd and Harry, they're down on their luck. Uh, Their van's broken down. Harry's walking alone on the side of the highway. And Lloyd pulls up on this tiny children's scooter And Harry looks at him and he says, just when I think you possibly couldn't get any dumber, you go and you do something like this and you totally redeem yourself. And this is how we oftentimes use the words today. It's like compensating for one's faults. If you have a bad game, well, you can go out and you can redeem yourself the next game by playing better. But that's not how uh, the word redeem is being used in this passage It's being used in the way that we would use it if we were talking about treasury bonds or pawn shops or coupons. Redeem means to to regain possession in exchange for a payment. So if you you were strapped for income and you took your jewelry collection or you took your golf clubs down to the pawn shop, they would give you cash for it. And then you'd have a certain period of time where if you wanted, if, if you got some funds back, you could go to the store and you could you could redeem those items. You could buy them back. And that's the meaning that's in view in this passage. We, we know in the ancient world that the word redemption was often used to refer to the, the freeing of a slave by buying him out of slavery. And it's this imagery that Scripture has in mind. Jesus redeemed us. He purchased our freedom and bought us back from slavery to sin by paying the price with his life. The other word, that helps make sense of Christ's work on our account is propitiation. And and at this point, uh, it might be helpful to share an image that commentator James Boyce developed to illustrate how Christ's work is connected to our justification. He calls this the, the salvation triangle. So see, up at the top of the triangle, we've got God the Father. Bottom left, we got Jesus Christ. And then uh, bottom right, that's us, uh, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus and would call ourselves Christian. Now, imagine each one of the lines that connects the triangle, they describe the, the, the theological terms that we have been discussing. So the bottom line stands for redemption. This is what uh, Jesus does for us. He, he buys us back. He, he redeems us. He's the one doing the action. We're the recipients of the action. We're the beneficiaries of it. Then there's the line between God the Father and us. That's justification. God is the subject of the action. He justifies us. He declares us righteous. And then we're the ones that get justified. We're the object of the action. 
And all of, of this is made possible because of what Jesus also did for us in relation to the Father. And this is where the word propitiation comes in. It's kind of a big word, unless you're in David Holcomb's small group, you probably don't use this like very often. But here's how we could define this. Propitiation is an act by which the wrath of God is appeased or turned aside. And many contemporary theologians have bucked against this idea. But their argument rests more on their modern sensibilities than on Scripture. They argue that this is not the God of Christianity. God is not angry. He's loving. And all we need to do is we need to recognize that he loves us and receive his forgiveness. One commentator wrote this. Those who revel in ideas, such as that Christ was made a sacrifice to appease an angry God, or that the cross was a legal transaction in which an innocent victim was made to pay the penalty for the crimes of others, a propitiation of a stern God, find no support in Paul. Is that really true? Because when we read the first three chapters of Romans, the one thing that Paul's making clear is that the wrath of God is our problem. I mean, that's, that was Romans 1.18. That's Romans 2.5. Some of you might be familiar with the song, In Christ Alone. We've sung it here several times in the past. It goes like this. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, the gift of love and righteousness, Scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Beautiful words. Well, several years ago, a hymn committee from a large mainline denomination wanted to add this song to their hymnal, but they wanted to change the lyrics. Instead of saying, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to sing this instead. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. So no wrath. Can't, we can't have a wrathful God. And you might say, well, I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, does it really matter? And I think scripture would tell us that it absolutely matters because here's what happens if we try and erase the wrath of God. What we're doing is we're creating God in our own image and it's a God who gives up his role as judge. Romans 3.26 goes on to tell us that God put forth Jesus as a propitiation to do what? To show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So without propitiation, you don't have a just God. Now, I know there are some who say, well, why, why, why can't God just forgive? I mean, why does he have to judge well, I think it might be helpful here to hear from a Croatian theologian, Miroslav Volf. He argues that it's the Western view of the church that's out of touch. He writes this, Imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate. Why not? I mean, because God doesn't judge. I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. 
in a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. A just God who judges sinners, it might appear grotesque to secular Americans, but a God who judges sin, it looks like salvation to people who are justice deprived. And unless Jesus turns the wrath of God aside, it's not just for him to forgive sinners. You see, the Bible teaches us that God is wrathful and loving at the same time. And our our salvation is made possible not because uh, his wrath pales in comparison to his great love. Our salvation is made possible because the full extent of his love and his wrath are displayed on the cross. How could anyone love a God that's described as a consuming fire? Well, because God himself, out of the great love for us, turned that fire in on himself. And this is why we can sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And and as wonderful as the work of Jesus is, it's not of benefit to us unless we receive it. And what's the means by which we take hold of this gift? Is it works? No, it's faith. It's faith specifically in Jesus Christ. Verse 22 says this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, or 326, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The way that we receive the gift The way that we lay hold of it, the way that that we reach out and grab it is by believing in Jesus. And I want to be as direct as I can. Have you ever placed your faith in Jesus? Has there been a time where you have recognized your own accountability before God and acknowledged that you don't measure up and then appealed to Christ's work on your behalf? I just want to invite us all just, just to close our eyes for a moment wherever you're at. And in the quietness of your thoughts, I just want you to answer that question for yourself. Can you say for certain that you've been justified? Do you know that your sins are no longer counted against you? Has there been a time when you've acknowledged that all your good deeds they won't give you a leg to stand on before God. And then through faith in Jesus Christ received God's righteousness. I suspect that our problem is the exact opposite of Martin Luther's. You know, he was at risk of missing out on God's grace because he thought he had to earn it. I feel many today are in in danger of missing out on God's grace because they don't believe they need it. Many today are are fine with God being a justifier, but have you ever realized that God's just too? And Maybe today God has used this passage the way that he has in the lives of so many other people. And he's opened the eyes of your heart to your great need to take hold of that righteousness that he wants to credit to your account.
we read on in this letter, we get to chapter 10, where it says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Listen, to to be saved, it doesn't say that you need to, to have everything figured out. All you have to know is that Jesus died in your place. And if you want to receive God's gift, you can just say a prayer like this. God, I realize I stand before you as sinner. But I thank you for your amazing grace. Jesus, I I thank you for redeeming me and bearing the penalty for my sin so that I can be declared righteous. And I confess you as my Savior and Lord. And all God's people said, Amen.